I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Where KSL offers Utah deeper insights on the news. Host Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason and elevates the conversation on issues crucial to our community. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Well, as people around the world continue to look at the atrocities taking place in Ukraine, there are so many who want to go down the old axiom of don't stand there, do something. Uh, They want the U.S. government or NATO or Europe to do something, to do anything. No-fly zone, stop the war, uh, give in, do something. And we have to remember that sometimes you have to flip the script, and sometimes it's don't do something, stand there. Uh, But the important thing is you actually have to think that through. And so to help us think that through, we're going to turn, as we like to, to Ben Burgess. He's the host of the YouTube show and podcast, Give Them an Argument. He's an adjunct philosophy professor at Morehouse College and a columnist at Jacobin Magazine. Uh, Ben, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, bud. Uh, and so as, as we look at this, uh, again, there there are so many who just want us to, to act, act, act. Uh, and sometimes we got to stop and, and think again and really assess. Uh, you wrote a piece uh, in Jacobin about everything from the no-fly zone uh, to a host of other things. But let's start with the no-fly zone. Uh, again, a lot of people think, well, that's easy. We can just do that. But what should we really be thinking about uh, as we assess uh, what that might actually do in the end? Yeah, my friend Emma Vigland Uh, put it really well on Twitter. She said that people often think of a no-fly zone as if it's a force field that we could just put up and, you know, and it it stops uh, stops planes from flying over Ukraine. But, of course, what we're actually talking about when we talk about a no-fly zone is the American military shooting down Russian planes over Ukraine. That's what a no-fly zone is. It's commitment to shoot down planes that fly over a certain area. And what I would just ask people who think this is a good idea to consider is how that phrase, shooting down Russian planes, would have registered at any time in the 60s or 70s or 80s uh, you know, while the Cold War was going on, and then to ask what's changed since then. Uh, the American and Russian uh, nuclear stockpiles haven't gone anywhere. Uh, in fact, the Russian ones are on, uh, you know, Russia's uh, nuclear forces are on high alert right now. And there is a reason why. Um, the United States didn't send troops to fight the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. There's a reason why, I guess it would have been Brezhnev then, didn't send the Red Army to fight American troops in Vietnam, because people have always thought that nuclear powers uh, going to war with each other just carried an unacceptable risk that it wouldn't stay conventional. Yeah. Uh, and so as we, we look at that, it's, uh, again, it, that visceral, natural reaction of, okay, let's 
I love of the way course. You, I love the way you, you frame that in terms of yeah, no fly zone. That'd be great. You know, just put up the force field or the Harry Potter, you know, magic something or another, and, and it's <laughs> all there. Uh, but but these are so complicated in terms of the the downstream impact, and obviously nuclear weapons are, is a big downstream. Uh, impact, but what else should we be thinking about in terms of this kind of conversation of the knee-jerk reaction thing that might make us feel good for a minute, uh, but the reality of of the complexities that we're dealing with? Yeah, I mean, I think that there are some things that you can do in response that I don't have a problem with. I, if um, Russian oligarchs are having their yachts taken away, I'm certainly not going to, you know, cry any tears for that. Um, But I I guess I I would ask for almost anything that people are considering doing, who's being hurt by it and and what good do you expect it to do? So, you know, I think that even with even with purely economic sanctions, you know, I'd make a distinction between things like seizing the assets of, you know, powerful and wealthy politically connected oligarchs and doing things that inflict real pain on ordinary, you know, working class Russians. And I'd also ask how all of this is going to affect politics inside of Russia, because, you know, if you think that, you know, the people in this situation who I admire most, you know, that I I feel the most sympathy for are Russians who are being arrested in anti-war protests right Mm -hmm. now. And I would ask how anything in particular considering doing is going to affect their situation. In other words, uh, is it going to make it easier to get Russians to oppose what Putin is doing, or is it going to have the opposite effect? Is it going to make people think they're under siege and they need to rally around the flag? Uh, that's that's such a great insight that, uh, again, you have to – look, I, I share your concern and feeling for the, for the people of Russia and some of these things that might uh, cause them to go in a, in a different direction because of the propaganda and because of what they're hearing – uh, I, I know one of the other uh, natural things. I'm sure you hear this a lot as well, uh, and that is, can't we, you know, can't we just take out Vladimir Putin? Can't we just, uh, can't we mm-hmm. just get rid of him, and won't that solve all the problems? And like most things, it's it's slightly more complicated. Yeah, uh, Lindsey Graham uh, tweeted that uh, that you know, is there a Brutus in Russia? And he had a couple of other historical examples, which is pretty shocking, actually, a prominent United States senator openly calling to assassinate uh, a, uh, a foreign leader. And that's probably not a precedent that we really want to set. I'd also question if that happened, how people think that would play out, right? I mean, like like if, if Putin were assassinated tomorrow, who people think would replace him? And I would assume that it would be somebody who would be high up in uh in the military and political hierarchy of Putin's Russia. In other words, probably not a very nice person either, and uh, probably not somebody that we know anything about, right? I mean, as, as Americans, uh, I think, you know, I think most Americans know the names, a name of about one Russian right now, Vladimir Putin, and, uh, and, and one, you know, one, you know, Ukrainian of Vladimir Zelensky. And so I think the idea that we, we, want to empower some random Russian general who, by the way, would then be taking power at a time when the country would be going into tailspin because the leader would have just been assassinated in the middle of a war, which I cannot even imagine what that would do in terms of destabilizing that country. Yeah, and yeah, and the region and, and on and on those those dominoes fall. Uh, ben, before I let you go, uh, I wanted to just mm-hmm. get uh, your take on 
what, what is it that you're watching or thinking about, or what do you think is something that we're just missing in all of this that you wish we were having a different or better conversation about? Uh, what the what the actual solution is, in other words, uh, how all of this ends, because it seems to me, I mean, maybe there's a fourth option that I'm missing, but the only things that I can see happening here are either – um, well, one, uh, the you know, United States gets militarily involved, which could be literally the end of human civilization. So I think that's the worst possible outcome. Two, Putin, quote unquote, wins, which would presumably mean that Ukraine for the next God knows, 10 years, 20 years, you know, would be like Afghanistan or Iraq was for us. Uh, I assume there would just be a bloody insurgency forever. Um, or three, there's, there's some kind of negotiated settlement. And I don't know what the path to three looks like right now, but that sounds like the least horrible option. And and so I I do worry a little bit that a lot of Americans right now see everything through the prism of World War II. Everything is Chamberlain appeasing Hitler at Munich and and so sort of demonize the very idea of of negotiated peace settlements. Uh, But I I think however we get there, I mean, it's got to be that because the other alternatives are just unacceptably horrible. Yeah, and I, uh, I'm so glad you said that, Ben, because I think one of the things we have to do, all of us as citizens, is we have to make sure we create enough space uh, for that peace option to emerge. Mm-hmm. If we are so locked in, and, and you said it perfectly in terms of if we've so demonized the, the other side that there's no place for a peace discussion, uh, then we are just in this knee-jerk reaction, and uh, we, we got to change the conversation and create space for that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I again, I, I don't know how we get from you know how we get from here to to there, but I mean, if if that's not where we're going, I think that you know all of the all of the other options are much worse than a lot of people realize. Yeah, yeah. Great perspective as always, Ben Burgess, philosophy professor uh, at uh, Morehouse and uh, columnist at uh, Jacobin Magazine. Ben, always appreciate your perspective. Thanks for joining us today. All right. Thank you so much for having me. We'll step aside for a quick commercial break. Great perspective there. Sometimes we have to have the exhale moment, and I think we need the exhale moment just so there's a space for another alternative to come in. Stay with us. Much more to come on Inside Sources on KSL News Radio. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.